Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Last week in our study of the book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us the ways God's wrath has been revealed. Today we'll see the evidences of God and how these make man guilty before God without excuse. Turn with me please to the book of Romans, chapter 1. And I would like to read from verse number 18 down to verse number 20 of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 20. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that They are without excuse. Let's pray. Father, we meet here this morning to hear from you. We meet here to be edified by your word, to gird up the loins of our minds, that truth takes hold of us, and that that very truth will carry us through our daily life. We are bombarded by lies and falsehood, mistruth and misrepresentation from every quarter. There's a conspiracy against your word. Men are teaching error. It's not just in the news, it's not just in the media. It is pouring out from the pulpit as well. And we, as your people, have only got one recourse. And that is your word and the truth that's therein. You have said, Lord, that as we move to the closing time of the age, there will be so much deception that if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. And we see this mushrooming deception Growing and growing and increasing and seeping into every area of life so that men lack the capacity to discern truth from error. And so we turn to your words and we ask you that your word would not only give us truth, but give us an understanding of why we are the way we are today. And in spite of all the excuses that are being presented, we thank you that your word says clearly that man is without excuse. He stands guilty before you. He stands a deliberate rebel who has gone his own way, chosen his own path, and wants to be accountable to be no one but himself. I ask you, Lord, to help us to 
understand that this is the biblical teaching and all the fairy tales that we're hearing today are just what they are spurious without any biblical basis help me this morning as I garner my thoughts and I cull the truths from your word and I serve them on the platter of the pulpit I pray this morning that it would be edifying to the believer and I ask you Lord that when we leave here this morning we would have some clarity on the matter of human guilt and man's inexcusability we pray for anyone that is not saved here this morning they might have rambled into this building they might be here by design they might have been invited it might have been that by just casual chance they've put on their clothes and decided to go to church and they rambled into this building I ask you this morning that the word of God would have its impact on such ones if they're not saved they've never bowed their knee to Christ they've never trusted the Lord they've never had a renewed life they're not born again they're outside the fold of redeemed of the redeemed I pray that this morning may be the turning point where they are arrested or as Paul says apprehended by you and they're brought to faith and trust in Christ we commit your word into your hand and we ask now for your blessings as we preach it in Christ's name we pray Amen frequently you'll find that I always try to relate what I've said before to what I'm going to say today because the continuity must be there and I would think that in many cases if I were to ask people the next day afterwards preach on Sunday morning the majority of people couldn't tell me it just goes to one ear comes out another we, we come to hear a sermon we don't come to live a sermon and, and that is part of the problem that you have as a pastor so that is why there is so much need for some form of repetition of the material. Now we have been considering the great fundamental statement which the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 as he is prosecuting the case about human guilt and man's inexcusability before God. The Apostle Paul charges man with two summary offenses. As he prosecutes his case, he says that man is guilty of two things. He said that man is guilty of ungodliness and man is guilty of unrighteousness. He is guilty of ungodliness because he has a benign neglect of God. He has a knowledge of God, but he lives as though God doesn't exist. So this benign neglect of God, Paul calls it ungodliness. And then... Because of his ungodliness, it trickles down into his life and he is also guilty of unrighteousness or gross immorality. In other words, the charge is twofold. Man is sinful before God and man is sinful in his dealings with men. That is why Paul uses these two terms, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now it's one thing to charge a man, it's another thing to present the evidence. And you find that the Apostle Paul presents the evidence of this guilt and this inexcusability of a man by calling his witnesses. Now there are two incontrovertible witnesses that Paul calls 
to the docks. He calls what I saw uh, internal witnesses. And then secondly, you'll discover he calls what we call external witnesses. Now the point of Paul calling these witnesses into the docks is because Paul wants us to know that mankind cannot plead ignorance in this matter of ungodliness and unrighteousness. There is no excuse whatsoever and man cannot plead that he doesn't know that he is ungodly and that he is unrighteous. The irrefutable fact that Paul is going to show in this passage, God has given to man's light. But the truth of the matter is that man have not lived up to the light that God has given to man. And therefore he stands before God a rebel that is guilty of violating the very knowledge that he has. Man, Paul is saying, has repudiated the knowledge that God has given to him. Now, I want to deal something here before we go on further. Before we go, I need to clarify two things about what Paul is dealing with here in this passage. Exactly what truth is Paul saying that God has given to all men? Now I'm saying that because we need to be very, very clear and it's very important we understand the extent of the knowledge that God has given to man. We must not inject into the teaching 21st century thinking. We must try to understand the context of what Paul is saying. Now I hope that it is obvious to people who read this passage that Paul is not saying that God has given to man the knowledge of salvation. You can't know how to be saved from nature. That's not what Paul is dealing with here. Later on, Paul is going to show you that not only has God revealed himself to man, but God has also revealed his salvation to man in Christ. That is special revelation. And Paul is not talking about special revelation. Paul is talking about a universal uh, revelation that all men, irrespective of who they are, have. That God has given to all, inclusively, this knowledge of himself. So we're talking here about general revelation. Now let me show you that there are two things, basic things that Paul has in mind. Look at verse 19. Because that which may be known of God is what? Manifested them because what God have showed it to them. Look at verse 21. Because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Look at verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. So what Paul is saying is there's some general things man knew about God. There's certain things that God reveals to all men, irrespective, that they knew. But they didn't want to retain that knowledge. And Paul is talking here about that general concept about God. And then the second thing that Paul is talking about is that man has a universal understanding of what is right and what is wrong. And you find that in verse number 32. Look at what he says. He says, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Now, who who, who knowing? Who who knows that? The judgment of God. Look at all those people that are mentioned in the verses before. 19 types of sinners are mentioned before. And Paul said, they all knew that what they were doing is wrong. And that it's worthy of judgment. In fact, Paul said, they knew one thing. The sentence of death 
It's on wrongdoing. And then if you look at chapter 2, and I don't want to go ahead of myself, in verse 14 and 15, he says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, but by nature the thing, do by nature the things in the law, they have not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law, what? Within where? In their hearts. So, so that's the argument. Man is guilty before God. Man is inexcusable in his guilt because God has revealed general things to all men universally. And the general things that God has revealed is general truth about God and general truth about what is right and what is wrong. All men know that. I, I want to say that this is important for us in when we're dealing with people. I, I have people sometimes ask me, and I suppose they've asked you before, Pastor Murphy, what happened to the heathen? What happened to the man that has never heard the gospel? We in the West have got more gospel than we need. We are saturated with the gospel. But what happened to the man, whether he be in the Amazon, or whether he be in the Congo, or whether he be in Alaska, or Antarctica, what happens to him? Could I tell you a secret? He doesn't have any excuse. Doesn't have any excuse. Any man knows, and every man knows there's a God. Every man knows what is right from wrong. By the way, you can go out to any civilization. Go into the pygmies in Africa, or go to the aborigines in, in, in Australia, or even go down to the uh, South American Indians, or even North American. You will discover that they all worship some kind of a God. And by the way, in every culture, adultery is wrong. Every culture, you don't find a culture where it's endorsed. It is wrong. Stealing is wrong in every culture. Lying is wrong in every culture. You don't have to argue this thing. You know why it's wrong? Because God has written it in every man's heart. Now let me ask you a question. If the pagan is guilty before God and has no excuse, what about you, the westerner? With all the light you've had for so many years, One of the things that fascinates me is that I throw away more Bibles in this church than we need to keep. I'm serious about that. There are Bibles packed up in that place over there. And I wonder why, you know, and, uh, and, and, and you, you, there's no place to put them. I wish I can give them away, but where are you going to put them? We dump them. We got so much Bible, man, and next time they got more Bibles again. And it doesn't matter how many times you dump them, they fill it back up again. That shows you really the sentiment of people towards the word of God. I'm saying to you this morning, the apostle Paul is saying that man had a universal knowledge about God and man had a universal knowledge about right and wrong. But then Paul points out something that's even more about that. It's how they responded to that truth. Look at verse number 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness. Who holds down the truth? That's what it means there. And that's how it should be translated. Who holds down the truth in unrighteousness? And what Paul is saying, man is repressing the truth. Man is restraining the truth. Man knows what is right. But he holds down what he knows to be right. 
And Paul said, he's more guilty, not only because God has given this knowledge, but he does not live up to the light of the knowledge, and he represses this knowledge and pushes it down into his psyche. And Paul is saying, no matter what you do, sir, it is there. You may pretend that you don't know. You may pretend that you've got all kinds of excuses. But listen to me. Before God, when you stand before God, there's not one of you that would argue with him that what he's saying here is not true. This is truth. And this is what God has said. Now the question, of course, is what is the evidence that all this is true? That man has this universal knowledge about God. And man has this universal knowledge about right and wrong. He not only knows knowledge about God, but he knows about righteousness and he knows about ungodliness. What's the evidence for that? Well, Paul calls two witnesses against man, to give evidence against man. By the way, you remember in the Bible, every matter should be settled by how many? Two or three witnesses. And you'll find that Paul will bring two witnesses, but just in case somebody said he's, he's going to bring a third one. Because everything has to be settled in the mouth or two or three credible witnesses. And so Paul in this passage, he's going to call two witnesses to give evidence against man. And the evidence, first of all, is the internal evidence and the witnesses. And there are two things I mentioned to you uh, that are the internal witness of man's guilt before God. In verse 19... Same chapter, Paul says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has what showed it unto them. Notice the word manifest in them. That is what, what Paul is saying here is this. There is an implanted God consciousness in man. That's the first internal witness. An implanted God consciousness. And by the way, if you want to translate this verse accurately, the King James does a job, but it's not really... It says more than it should say. Because when it says in verse 19, because that which may be known of God, is not that which may be known of God, that which is known of God. There's only so much we can know. We can't know everything about God. But there are certain things that man can know about God. And that's why Paul is saying, that which is known is manifest in them because God has shown it unto them. The point Paul is saying here, is that this basic knowledge, God has put it, and God has made it available to man. The question, of course, is, if it is true, where does he find this knowledge, and where must he go to find this knowledge? And the answer is, he doesn't need to go anywhere, it's in him. You don't need to read any scientific books, it's in him. You don't have to take a biology class, it's in him. He doesn't have to do physics, it's in him. He doesn't have to do chemistry, it's in him. He doesn't need a scholar to tell him, it's in him. That's Paul Paul is saying. In other words, the witness is in you. That's the first witness. The internal witness of a God consciousness in man. And and by the way, I like how the NIV translates verse 19. He said, that which may be known of God is made plain. That's how they try. Made plain. God has made it plain to them. God, listen, God has indicted every man as guilty. And to prove his guilt, God has made it very plain that all have this. See? This is Paul's charge uh, here, that this, this God consciousness. And by the way, 
when you hear the modern man saying he doesn't believe in God and that he's an atheist, could I tell you a secret? He's fighting against an inner voice in him saying, you know, that's not true. It's a great fight going on in the name of And you know why they have to fight so hard? They have to ridicule God. They have to dismiss God. They have to curse God. They have to drown God in drugs, in sex. They have to drown out the voice of God in all kinds of alcoholism. You know why they got to do that? Because, listen to me, they can't silence that God consciousness in there. So when you hear an atheist arguing loudly and and brawling and screaming, you ever read the book by um, this guy Dawkins? Read it. I, I read Dawkins' book, and I said, here's a man crying out for help. I've never heard a man use such vulgar term to, dis- to describe God in my whole life. The terms that he gave to God and how he described God, I, I said to myself, isn't he scared that God might just damn him? But you know, when I read that, I also see a silent screen with him saying, I'm going to tell God these things because I hope he says something to me. <laughs> so when I read Dawkins, I am very, how should I put it, I, I, I'm, I'm almost sympathetic towards him because I understand that the screen that he, he, he writes in his book is in fact he wants God to reveal himself in a more visible way. But I know one thing, that Dawkins cannot escape the reality that there's a God consciousness in him. And no man can eradicate that because guess what? It's implanted. I, I call it a, like a, a microchip. You ever had a scratch yet, but you can't scratch it? Yeah. That's what you got. You got a voice within you. You want to silence it, but you can't silence it. You play loud music to drown it out. You don't want to hear it. You get involved in all kinds of activities because you, somehow you're hoping that you can drown it. You can silence it. But then you go to sleep and next morning it is there. I'm still here. I'm still here. You had a good time last night? Yeah. yeah. You had the alcohol, you had the women, you had the wine, you had the dance, you had all of that. Yeah. You had a prostitute. Yeah. But guess what? I'm still here. I'm still here. See? It's an act of futility for any man to try to deny this basic universal knowledge because God has put it there in man. And then secondly, there's not only this implanted God consciousness, we pointed out you, there's an innate moral conscience that God has put in every man. Uh, Paul says that, now imagine, you, you, you read Romans chapter 1 and, and you, you read the final chapter, you read this whole list of all of these things that these people are doing, read it there for yourself, you see, I mean, these are things that are vulgar and moral. But yet Paul says that even grossly immoral people know that what they're doing, God is going to judge and they're worthy of death. They know it. You know why they know it? Because there's something called an innate conscience that God has also put in you. It's the soul's automatic warning system. It's the moral compass in your life that always points north. 
to God's truth. No matter where you go, it brings you back to north. It's the soul's traffic lights that flashes green and tell you, yes, that's okay. But when you're about to do something wrong, it flashes red. Don't go that way. And then when you are on that wayward path and it flashes amber, danger, danger, danger. It's in you, sir. To see Mara, how old are you? Don't tell me your age. Don't, I don't want to know. But let me tell you something. I don't know how old you are. You might be. I, I, well, I'm, uh, the fact about this is. Uh, <laughs> the fact about this is this. I know one thing about you. That you can never deny. There's something you call a conscience. Okay? But Kwame you're much younger than she is. Could I tell you something about yourself? You have a conscience. Sister Jeffries you're older than Sister, Sister Sandy. Sister Jeffries I know one thing about you. And I can assure you this, you too got a conscience. It doesn't matter what age you are, how old you are. It's in there. And by the way, this little boy here, how old are you? Do you know right from wrong? <laughs> yeah, he knows. Now let me ask you that. Did you think his mommy ever sat down by him and tell him this is right and this is wrong? He was born with that. So when a man does wrong and lives wrong and goes contrary to scripture, he is going against what he knows. It is willful, rebellious sin. You are a rebel if you are a sinner here this morning. Make no bones about that. You're not a good sinner. You're a rebellious sinner. That's the biblical doctrine, sir. About you. And every man, whether he be a professor, whether he be a dunce, whether he be a pagan, whether he be a civilized westerner, whether he be a philosopher, or whether he be a charlatan, the truth of the matter is that he and she has this conscience within. They know right from wrong. God has put it there. And you know why God has put it there? Because morality could not be left to the whims and vagaries of mankind. You cannot have one set of morals, sir, that is okay for you and one set that's, that is, is, you know, wrong for me. God wants to put all of us on the same playing field. So in that day, God brings us before you and God tells us, every one of you knew this. They will not be one say, but, but you know, I, I, I only knew this, I only knew. No, God said, we all know it. You don't level the playing field. God levels the playing field. When he gives man this sense of not only a universal knowledge of God, but also this universal concept of right and wrong. And by the way, in chapter 1 and verse 32... Paul uh, makes several charges against uh, mankind. Several charges. Look at, look at verse, uh, verse 32. Here are the charges. Who knowing the judgment of God. So number one, they know the judgment of God. That's, that's, number one, they know it. It's not a question. 
Whether or not they should be judged for this, they know it. It's within them. Number two, verse number two said that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Such things and such acts are wrong. They know it is wrong. And the reason why they believe that God will judge it is because they know it is wrong. And then number four, that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only do the same, but what do they do? They do the same things they know to be wrong, they turn around and do it. And then the fifth charge that Paul brings against them is this. They not only do it, but they find pleasure in them that do it. That's like you going on the internet and watching pornography. Hmm? You don't do it. You wouldn't get involved and let somebody with a movie or some kind of a camera or some kind of a iPhone or something take your picture and put it. But you, you, you wouldn't do it. But you find tremendous pleasure in them that do it. Anytime you hit the word pornography, everybody goes silent. It's the biggest sin in the church. I'm telling you, it's the biggest sin in the church. Not asking you, I'm telling you, it's the biggest sin in the church. By the way, it's not just the young people. It's the old people. And it's the middle people. And it's the grannies. And the grandfathers. They've lost their zip and zap. And now they can only enjoy it vicariously. So that's why they are so much involved in this thing called pornography. But notice the crime. They knew God's judgment. Now if you know that God is going to judge, you know that it means that you knew it was wrong. They knew that those that commit such things are worthy of death. They themselves turn around and do the same things. And then, even though they do, don't do certain, they find pleasure in them that also do them. They enjoy it vicariously. You ever heard of voyeurism yet? Anybody ever heard of voyeurism? That was my greatest sin. I think I told the church that before he was saved. That was my greatest sin. That was my greatest sin. I, I would not get involved in things that are wrong, immorality and so on. But boy, I was a peeping tongue. Man, I have, I have put a hole in a galvanizer already. I'm telling you, confession is good for the soul. Confession is good for the soul. I was a virus. I would pass the road and hear noise, and I'd go next to the house. Well, listen, if, I could, if you only knew me, the evil me, see, it would shock some of you. But why did I do those kind of things? I wouldn't do it myself. But I got tremendous pleasure in doing it. Tremendous pleasure. And the Apostle Paul is saying, for those of you who say, well, I didn't do it. But do you enjoy it? Do you enjoy watching other people do it? Paul says, listen, you are guilty before God and you are without excuse. So there's an innate moral conscience and there's an implanted God consciousness. Now under the law, you only need two witnesses, two credible witnesses. 
And what Paul has now laid, he's prosecuting this case that man is guilty before God and there's no excuse for man's unrighteousness and man's ungodliness. No excuse. So Paul said, witness number one. Come, sir. Conscience. Witness against that man. And then Paul says, implanted God consciousness. It is there. The evidence leads us to one conclusion. That on the basis of those two witnesses, credible witnesses, they will not compromise. You can't bribe them. You can't let the case be brought and then have the lawyer uh, be out of the island and have it postponed and adjourned. These are witnesses that that are in you yourself. So when Paul prosecutes his case before you, every one of us here this morning must say guilty as charge. Guilty as charge. But the Apostle Paul, while he has successfully brought these two witnesses to prosecute the case, he now wants to augment the case. And he does that by bringing a third witness. What we call the external witness against man. Look at verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are what? Clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are what? Without excuse. So Paul argues that man has this internal knowledge of God. But then Paul now shifts and says, in addition to this internal knowledge of God, there is also this external witness that man also has. And what a tremendous statement that is, that Paul gives in verse number 20. Theologians call this the cosmological argument for God. Theologians always like to come up with fancy names. They like jargon. It sounds so intellectual, so smart, so cute. See? But all Paul is simply saying here, and they're saying, that, listen, when you look at creation, you notice a God. Theologians say cosmo, cosmological argument. See? Cosmos, the world, the ordered world, logos, study. See? Boy, we become Grecianized. How oh, we love the Greeks. Now the logic and the argument is simple and what Paul is here saying that when you look at the magnitude and the magnificence of creation, it posits that a creator exists. Now by the way, when I was in school, I did a lot of uh, geometry and there were certain things called theorems and they were called, certain things were axiomatic, not a fancy word. Boy. But when something was axiomatic, it means that it was just as it is. There was no need for arguing, no need to giving reasons. It is just axiomatic. It, it, it's just, there are some things that are just right. There are some things that are self-evident. You don't need any proof. For example, every triangle has three sides. Now you can, you can argue with me from now until you, the, the, the Lord comes back. But every triangle has, as long as a triangle, I know what, it has three It's axiomatic truth. I don't have to prove it. It is self-evident proof. 
Every pentagon has how many sides? Five sides, not six, seven, or eight. Five sides. That is called axiomatic truth. Here's another one. Every house has a builder. Uh, Paul argued that in the book of Hebrews, by the way. Book of Hebrews. Every house has a builder. This building had a builder. Now I can rant and rave and I can argue with you and I can shout and I can use all kinds of fancy terms and I can tell you it just happened. One day we came here and bam, this building just happened. The windows just happened. The doors just happened. The ceiling, the lights just happened. We just, they just dropped down from heaven. Now there's not an ignoramus in here that would believe that. But could I give you a secret? Our universe, this is minuscule in complexity with the universe that we are in. Can I give you another secret? The greatest and largest computer in the world is not as complex as one single cell in your body. The information that they have in there, somebody told me it's like the, the Encyclopedia Britannica, all that information is in there. How do they get there? And it's not information that is random. It's in an order, a sequence. Now you tell me today, any sensible person looking at what is, and the kind of knowledge we, by the way, Darwinian theory is infantile and puerile pseudoscience. It before men really understood about the complexity of the cell. Darwin was a boy in science when he came up with his theory. It is not science, it's pseudoscientism. That's what it is. See. The argument that Paul is making here is very simple. The external world as we see it, the vast, magnificent complexity of it, is empirical evidence. And there's another fancy word. Scientists say, we, we want proof, we want physical proof, we, we want substantial proof. Well, you want it? It's all there, sir. All there. Can you make a blade of a grass, sir? With all your intelligence and all your sense. Can you make the blade of a grass? Not even a single blade of a grass he can make. It baffles me that we have entered the realm of idiocy. Where people, in order to be thought smart, embrace evolution. Baffles me. It goes against everything my instincts tell me. And everything my mind tells me. The point Paul is making here, there's external evidence. And every machine has a designer. And could I say something? Everything that has an end, has a what? A beginning. And you know the laws of thermodynamics. What do those laws say? That everything is what? Running down. So somebody wound it up first. Even scientific law. It was wound up and now it's running down. They know it's running down. They know it's not eternal. And if it has an end. It has a beginning. Somebody had to wound it up. And there when you find ordered sequential information. You also think of what? Intelligence. Intelligence. And every cause is always greater than the effect. What we have is the world. 
The cause that caused the world is greater than the world itself. That is the proof that Paul is saying here. It is everywhere Paul is saying. God has not only given you an internal witness of your implanted God consciousness. An innate conscience. But Paul is saying God has also given you external evidence. The created order is there. See. And I want to believe that this, this argument that Paul gives about creation. It, it gives evidence everywhere of a powerful, intelligent, creative being. And could I say this? Everywhere you go, you see the finger of God. When you go into the Sistine Chapel and you see the works of Michelangelo Raphael, there are certain distinctive marks that they can say, that's a Michelangelo, that's a Raphael. See? They know it. See? And when you look at the what is, you know one thing, something greater than what is made this all. See? Far more intelligent. This is the argument that Paul is using here. And so God has revealed in creation, uh, in the magnitude of what is created, the order in, uh, that we have, the arrangement that we see, the miniaturization that we witness in creation. You know, I am baffled. I, I, I remember one time I went to a conference and a guy held up a little flash drive. At the time, I didn't even know what a flash drive was. And then he said that, all these, he, he listed all, uh, Bibles and commentaries and he, he listed all these. And I said, but wait, I, I didn't tell him at the time, but I, I really, I, how in the world all of that is in there? All the Encyclopedia Britannica is on there. You can do it just yourself. No man can do that. Man with his puny brain can do that. And then how can we ever conceive that this just all happened? That is why Paul said what? They're what? Without excuse. The evidence is so formidable that man has to come to one conclusion. That there is a creator and there is an intelligent designer and there's one that is far greater than what the effects was, the cause, the first cause. This is the reality of what Paul is saying. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy continues to show us more external witnesses of God. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.